everyone, welcome to Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast sponsored by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney Ferris. Well, it's been a, a long, hot summer in Dublin, um, but with autumn settling in, more Librarians Allowed chats are on the way. So my guest for this episode is Catherine McSharry. Catherine is the Head of Outreach at the National Library of Ireland and she's the person responsible for coordinating some of their incredibly impressive exhibitions in the last couple of years. We had a chat recently on a warm, sweaty Dublin afternoon and we talked about things like the responsibility of curating exhibitions, protecting legacy and I've talked about the current exhibition Listen Now Again, which looks at the life and the work of Seamus Heaney. So listen up, uh, you might get some inspiration for Culture Night uh, and enjoy the sound of the seagulls squawking in the background. So I'm here with Catherine McCrary. Catherine, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me for Librarians Allowed. Um, it's very appropriate that I'm here in the, the National Library on Heritage Week. Um, how's your Heritage Week going so far? Um, well, delighted to have you here at any stage. And of course, mm-hmm. Heritage Week is particularly appropriate. Um, what we've been doing this Heritage Week is particularly focusing on hearing from some of our team here at the library talk about the work that they do. Mm. So we've had uh, Maria Ryan, who's our digital archivist, talking about our web archiving. We've had some of our conservation team talking about the work that they do. We're looking at digital design and how we might be involved in safeguarding and preserving digital design for the future. And I'm gonna talk myself a little bit about our Seamus Heaney exhibition. So it's an opportunity, I think, for people to share the work that they're doing with a wider audience. Great, so it's a really good introduction to everyone in the the National Library family and and all the the really varied work that you do here because it really has expanded a lot. Yes, I think that's really a a key part of a lot of what we're trying to do in terms of how we reach out out to people is the National Library has a really broad remit. Mm. We have really extensive collections and we do a huge amount more than perhaps most people might imagine. Yeah. You hear the word library, if you're not in the library sector and in the library profession, then it maybe conjures up a very particular kind of work. And a national library can conjure up something very serious, very scholarly, very bookish. Mm. And that obviously is a part of what we do, but it's very far from being the whole story. So any opportunity that we have to expand out that story is great. Yeah. Um, And in terms of of library stories, and just um, going back into your heritage and how you how you ended up sitting where you are here today in the, the lovely National Library. What was your first experience of libraries, say even um, going back into, into your past, or where, where was the first kind of spark of maybe a library is where I, I might end up? Well, my first memory of libraries is in Galway. I'm from Galway. Mm. Originally, I grew up in Galway. And um, the library, the public library, started out when I was... Um, when I was young in the courthouse oh. so it was in the upstairs part of the courthouse and I have a really strong visual kind of sense memory of being in there that kind of smell of an old library mm. and going into an old building and the very particular kind of quality of light because the courthouse in Galway is backs onto the river mm. um, so I have a really positive first memory of libraries and then 
obviously um, I did English and French for my degree and I have a master's in English literature as well so I was always interested in language and I was always interested in books and I loved reading but I don't think that's really the reason why I was interested in libraries particularly I was always fascinated by information and how information is shared Mm. and in opening up the wealth of resources and knowledge and information that might be in any organization or in any place to people so it's that connection between information and people that really was the spark for me in terms of librarianship yeah so another arts graduate yes exactly arts graduate this week (laughs) exactly exactly. a lot of arts graduate bashing um apparently the the points have gone down for arts courses apparently because because in Certainly the headlines were that people were looking for more job-focused yeah, courses. But I clearly, I'm sure from all our experience, mm. we know that you'll find people whose primary degree was in arts in all kinds of roles. Exactly, yeah, um, it's very diverse and it lends itself to so many different backgrounds. And I think you very perfectly summed it up there that people assume if you're from an arts background that you're very bookish and very kind of internal and that there is a very limited world into which you can enter and that it has to be very related to the specific subject that you studied as opposed to the reality of you know an arts or humanities background which gives you a kind of a very broad base to be able to um, apply skills to a number of different areas and I think that's one of the things that is very beneficial about arts backgrounds at, at least if you haven't got your heart set on something that is very, very specifically focused, you know, with like a, a very specific qualification of medicine, let's say, or law. Yeah, and I, I always feel that for most people, the idea that you want to do, know that what you feel you want to do or might want to do at 18 mm-hmm. and that that is going to be what you do for the rest of your life, that's actually very rare. Yeah. So some people, some people do, and they have an idea of the profession that they want to get into, and that's the road that they take, and they find out over time that that is the right match for them. Mm. But for so many people, at eighteen, you are so unformed. The world changes so quickly around us. Mm. Um, I, I think the idea, if you have that privilege, and if you're lucky enough to be able to um, go to university in the first place, which is the position of high privilege and I think it's yeah. really important for all of us to remember that uh, that your that the fact that your original degree is not very narrowly focused on one particular profession that doesn't seem to me like a disadvantage no yeah and I'm increasingly the older I get and the more I spend the more time I spend in, in the working world the more I realize that the idea of being very firmly focused and fixed on one career path at the age of 18 is absolutely ludicrous you know it's it's ludicrous even at the age of 25 or 30 or even 40 at, at, at any point to make an assumption that this is what I want to do now and it won't change and this is the I'll stay on this path is kind of crazy because you know one of the great things about having spoken to lots of librarians is to see the many and varied routes into the profession but also to see that you know even within someone's librarian experience that there are so many different kind of side tracks and different directions in which people go in terms of I started one I started down the route of librarianship but I you know I changed from one type of library role to another and I kind of took on different um, CPD and it pushed me in different directions I was you know my experience was opened up to different things so that led me down a different path I I like the idea of being open to 
um, you know, what, what you're exposed to and running with that. Um, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that and, and I think that idea of CPD is so important. Mm. Even if, the broadly speaking, the path that you choose at the very outset of your career is the one that you go down, that career itself is not going to be the same yeah. at the end of your time. And the idea that you might do training of three or four or five or six years at the beginning of your career and that's the end of it, mm. you're not going to be very good at what you're doing if that's your idea. Yeah, it's going, to, it's going to be a pretty limited existence um, if you stick with that core set of skills that you go into the profession with and you don't expand upon them. Um, so what was it then that led you to to deciding upon taking the first step into the library world or taking the qualification? After I did my degree and my master's, um, I taught for a couple of years and, and did a few different things. And I was looking around and I decided that I was thinking about going back to college and doing the, uh, the MLIS and getting into librarianship. And then I actually saw a, great, a graduate traineeship advertised at the National Library. Oh, great. So I suppose sometimes those things feel like they're serendipitous. You have something in your head and an opportunity comes along that seems to marry up with where you're trying mm. to get to. And the graduate trainee program, it had been running for a year at the National Library when I applied for it. So it was just getting into its second mm. year. So every year now we take in um, an archives, someone who's interested in working in archives, someone who's interested in working in librarianship, um, and very often then a postgraduate student in history. Um, so all people kind of at the outset of their career. Mm. And what it meant for me was I got a year um, paid as a uh, as a trainee which was great and then I went on to do the library course the following year mm. um, so one of the things that was great about that experience is that as a graduate trainee here I got to do lots of different things work in lots of different parts of the organization see lots of um, different aspects of the work was lucky enough to work on a publication that we were bringing out that year so lots mm. of additional expertise with research and that sense of the library, the National Library, as being a place with loads and loads of potential was really exciting. Mm. So you really hit the jackpot as far as a graduate traineeship in terms of you know, opening you up to just how big the world of libraries can be and you know, everything that a National Library can embrace. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was probably an interesting time for the library, so that would have mm. been um, 2001, 2002, um, just as you're starting to feel the effects of digital change, mm. um, change in the kind of world around us. And I was also really lucky, everyone is always really lucky in any um, job, if this turns out to be the case, is I met great people and I made mm. great friends and people who were curious and interested in the in the world that we were in and interested in their, their discipline and their part of it. And I think as much as anything that's what fires enthusiasm as well yeah exactly and it it's very rare and you know if if you get into a situation like that you really have to kind of just enjoy it while you have it because there's nothing um, more enjoyable than working with people who really love what they do and you know, love exploring it and love sharing it and are enthusiastic and passionate about it, it it's it, it's infectious yeah well I have to say that's been part of that's been part of my experience at the National Library through all the different iterations mm. um, and times that I've been here um, and yeah you can't 
there's no substitute for it really because it means you are always learning and you're always being re-enthused by the people around you mm. so at the end of that year did that make you think I want to come back here or this is the, the direction that I want to go in or did did it just open you up to I can I can go in so many different directions when I qualify as a librarian yeah, I think it's it, it's it's that really is that I came out of it thinking, well, the National Library is a great place and it has mm. wonderful opportunity and potential, and now I'm going to do the library course and see where where all of that takes me. Mm. And as it happened, just after I finished the course, the National Library was starting to work on a major exhibition about James Joyce. Um, so 2004 mm. was the, the centenary of Bloomsday, so the day on which yeah. Joyce's novel Ulysses is set. And the library was opening up a big exhibition. Um, and not only that, but it was the first time really that the, that the National Library had had an exhibition space or public space where you could have lectures and um, a seminar room and, and mm. so on. So before that, it was really the research spaces and there, there wasn't a huge amount of other public space on site. Uh, so I was asked to be involved in putting that exhibition together. And so it was really, I mean, it was an amazing opportunity for mm. somebody who'd come from a literature background, but it was also amazing because this was the first time that something like this was being done and it can be very... It can be very challenging and it can be very stressful working on something the first time it's being done but it's also hugely enriching and exciting because it's an opportunity to to shape how something will will emerge yeah and to develop completely new skills as well because there are all these other elements to putting together a project like that always kind of brings in a very disparate set of skills that you <laughs> either have or you know, develop as you go along well, exactly. And one of the great things about um, that experience, and I suppose that's been true all the way through, is I would have worked with, um, so Catherine Fahey was um, mm. the director for that project. So I worked really closely for, with Catherine and Catherine had worked at the National Library um, all her working life mm. and had a huge breadth of knowledge, but was also a really curious, really um really intellectually engaged person that was that's a great person to have as your boss yeah. but it would also have been working with our conservation team and with the exhibition design team so people from all different walks of life and with all different types of skills and you know lots of them skills that I wouldn't have myself and that I might never have myself mm. but just very exciting to see how they go about their business. Mm. So when you went into UCD then how did that academic experience of um, librarianship how did that feel having been in a very vibrant working library how did how did the kind of the marriage of the the academic sense and the the actual reality of the job how did that kind of strike you so i think one of the most useful things that anybody can do in in any career um certainly in libraries is have a broad mix of experiences of different types of working environment mm. um because one of the things it shows you is that so everybody every library thinks it's unique and that all its um all its positives and all its problems are completely unique yeah. and in fact a lot of them are very similar mm. and um i think that's that's a really helpful perspective to have what i loved about being in ucd library is the the immediate connection with your community so in an academic library you know who you are trying to serve. Mm. You have a student body and an academic body and you know who you're trying to serve. In somewhere like the National Library, 
in theory, it's everybody. Mm. And so you don't necessarily have the same immediate kind of feedback from your community about what they want and how you they want things to develop. You have to find ways to engage your community much more so in a, in a bigger organisation with a national remit. Um, and I was lucky because I was working in special collections and um, there was a really small team there and everybody I worked with there was, was great. Mm. And the collections themselves then had lots of interest. But I loved that idea of in the academic library is starting to form connections with different parts of a bigger organization so with my own colleagues in the library Mm. with um, academic departments with the ucd archives so in a way that was where at the time i forged the most kind of experience with partnerships and with how you can how you can work with other parts of organizations to achieve a lot together Um, and you'll always see there's that can be a tricky thing as well Mm. um no no partnership i think that's that's really valuable doesn't have some element of challenge or or um Mm. you know um quirks to be worked out Mm. um but that was a, a a really big factor there and i suppose one of the things that maybe you'd experience less at somewhere like the National Library is when people come in here, they're kind of expecting to see and handle rare material and fragile mm-hmm. things, and that's part of the perspective that they have. Um, a lot of students, particularly in UCD, they were really blown away by rare and valuable materials and being able to come in and look at them and consult them as, as part of their as mm-hmm. part of their work. Um, and again, that two-way street, um, you learn a huge amount from academics because they have an area of specialism and yeah. um, the best academics are always teaching even if they don't know it mm. yeah particularly you know you can't have that level of knowledge on a subject and not be constantly just feeding people information about it yeah. just in even the most casual conversations um, you're right though like that that sense of you know the partnership and relationship building um, that happens very much in, in academic um institutions uh, and can be can be tricky to, to negotiate because you are dealing with people who have very high level of knowledge in in a subject and there, there can be territory in in that you know in that relationship and a lot of negotiation around boundaries and you know who who handles what and that is often something that happens within libraries especially around something like special collections because it's outside of the kind of the the research function um, in terms of just the day-to-day production of research but but you're dealing with people who have you know a very deep connection to the materials maybe that you're handling so I can imagine that produces some interesting relationships and um, probably very valuable you know, connections with your researchers. Well I think there are all kinds of dynamics around ownership mm. with rare materials particularly is um, that sense of who who loves the material the most you yeah. know? Um, and fundamentally that that kind of sense of ownership is rooted in the most positive um, feelings towards records and information and collection mm. material um, but it has to be negotiated very carefully because if everybody feels that they love something the most and that they have the most information and the most knowledge about how to look after it or um, leverage it or reveal it mm. 
you have to keep that always in your head because otherwise you it's very easy to run into problems because then instead of being on a continuum of people who have a shared set of feelings you're potentially as you say marking out territory Um, and that's I think that's where more than anything um, libraries libraries rely on this to a huge degree but I think it's true across all the working world is that building of relationships Mm. when you invest time in building relationships and that is often through working with people that's how you get to know them and they come to trust you is you're you're building a foundation of goodwill um, and good faith and out of that then there is scope to make a mistake or to take a wrong step yeah because fundamentally you have you have built this basis of trust i know myself when you work with somebody and you do a good job together and you respect the person's skills and strengths it's a whole different experience than if on some some occasion they do something that you're surprised by or that you would have a question in your own head about because you've got this bedrock of trust and I think an awful lot of that kind of territoriality or siloed thinking that can happen in libraries um, can really be addressed through that idea of of trust and, and of relationships yeah and that really if you think about it it kind of it, it's it's so in opposition to the idea or at least the traditional idea of what it is that libraries do or what very much in the past libraries had been seen to do which was just to be gatekeepers of the of the actual material itself and to be literally just you know opening you know opening collections and and deciding who comes in and and who has access and making making those kind of very you know judgmental decisions about you know yes you're granted access or you're not um that idea of the relationship being really key to you know the, the life of the collection and also you know the, the the development of it and the development of the the librarian's role or the library's role with that material is is very important. It's interesting that you kind of pick up on on that. I think that idea of of gatekeeping is a really interesting one. Mm. Um, for everyone, um, I think it's really easy to lose sight of what where the actual status or power in your role comes from mm. um and gatekeeping can be a very powerful place yeah because as you say it is all about permission and access and there's, there's an inherent yeah there's an inherent power structure in that and power struggle um, and a judgment probably um, if you really interrogate it further um yes and I, and I and i think it is an, it is one of those areas where um potentially we all have to challenge ourselves a bit around mm. our our biases and our expectations of of norms and what is um what is appropriate and what is proper um but i think the the revealed power in the interrelationship with people is so much more important and meaningful and mm. has so much more impact than the contained power of um of mediating access yeah um but one certainly you can see that there could be a certain kind of pleasure in it and a pleasure that's that's also rooted in fundamentally in care and concern and wanting to look after mm. the collections um but it it's very easy for that to tip over into something else yeah. i think you can really see particularly in the last 
10 years or so just that that whole approach has been completely cracked open um especially in in relation to special collections they did used to be something that you know were hidden you know that, that there was an idea of these amazing um, artifacts being held in library collections, and yet no one really got access to them. Um, there was a, you know, without without a huge amount of knowledge, you know, it was only really the scholars that had very close and intimate relationships with this material that got access to it, and that really isn't the case anymore. Um, the idea of special collections now is to, to you know, bring them out and to take them out from the shadows and you know grant that access and make you know publicize them and and bring people in yeah i think there were a few different things going on there um, i think there have always been people in in special collections and in archives who have been incredibly supportive and incredibly nurturing of all kinds of users mm. um but didn't always see it as their role or maybe weren't always encouraged to see it as their role to be out there telling people about mm. what was available um so that's um I think that's something that's changed is just seeing the role a little bit differently it's both opening up and providing um providing access to a really wide group but also that kind of promotional and marketing side of things that that's actually mm. also part of part of your job um and then i think one of the things that's most rewarding um when you see users interacting with special materials is that again once you start to challenge this view, the idea that people wouldn't be careful or they wouldn't look after the material carefully, mm. they, they didn't approach it in a careful spirit. I mean, that's absolutely never been my experience. Um, you, you could be very unlucky and you can get somebody who is not thoughtful or careful about the material. But in my experience, particularly students, mm. students are a little, bit, a little bit nervous, a little bit overawed. If anything, they're inclined to be too careful. Mm. Um, so sometimes you can have a whole set of fears that actually aren't really grounded in how people actually behave. Yeah, and realistically, you know, if, if you're if you were to be true to you know being I suppose evidence based in in making a decision about who should or shouldn't access collections, then allow people to to access them and see what happens if it's a problem. Yeah, do something to to rectify it. But as you said, generally speaking, we make assumptions. You know, in the past there had been assumptions made about how someone would interact with something based on you know, no real evidence. Yeah, and what's, I guess what's critical is that for the long-term sustainability of the kinds of services that libraries offer and the engagement that they have with users and the, that two-way dynamic of learning from your community and serving them, um, that is through interaction. Mm. Uh, nobody comes to love something or advocate for it or um, feel that it's an important part of the community that they're that they're a part of at a distance and mm. um, they might feel awe or they might feel um, a little bit nervous of something or they might feel that it's important but not for them but those are not the things that lead someone to actually be a supporter or an advocate for what a library does yeah um, so it's in that process of of engagement discussion sharing that the again that relationships are formed yeah and in as much as um, libraries are often in their interactions with their users trying to kind of get them to be aware of needs that they're they haven't even articulated yet especially you know in terms of research 
you're often pitching something that someone hasn't it hasn't even occurred to them yet that it is, is a need of theirs um, there's a need that we have to you know, interact with users in terms of there are things that our collections could do that we can't even fathom until we see people interact with them yes you know, exactly that, that we there are ideas we're never going to come up with until we see how people relate to what we have in our collections yes I mean I think that's so that is so important um, that it's not all it's not all push it's not all telling people about mm. the amazing things that we have and being welcoming welcoming and being open important as those things are that is the first stage mm. to seeing exactly as you say how do our communities engage with what we are doing can what can they tell us about what we might do that would make things easier or better or more pleasant or more interesting and what can they from the wisdom of all of those people help us to shape yeah yeah there's some there's you know the, the third thing that's in the middle of us us doing for them or them doing for us there's the us doing together element of it um so how long did you stay with with ucd and the, the special collections there and so i was there for two years um and then i came back to the national library mm-hmm. and so a, a job opened up and i actually moved into the digital part of um part of the national library at the time so that was quite a big change and mm. um, but I suppose the thread I would always see running through everything that I've done is that idea of how can we mm, open up to the biggest number of people mm. and learn in the process and develop new skills and and I suppose I do like change I guess that's something that I've noticed is yeah. that I like um, to be part of something which is new or which is um, which is changing in some way. Mm. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I worked, um, I worked on a, a number of digital projects, um, digitizing some of our glass plates collections, so some of our historic photographs, mm. which was fascinating both from the point of view of the content and what was in those photographs, and uh, in terms of the process of making them available and um, putting them online. And I worked on a big um, data conversion project. We had catalogues of Irish manuscripts and articles in Irish periodicals and um, which were in huge big green volumes um, mm. Hayes sources um, a lot of people would have known them as and that was really interesting um, like really large bodies of data turning that into a, into a digital form and making it searchable mm. um, and I worked with I worked with somebody really closely on that um, Ona Carragon who's based in the UCC library now okay. who absolutely an amazing person to work with mm. and uh, like a great friend really different skills than I had would think much bigger mm-hmm. and he was a great person for helping me to to start out by thinking much bigger about what you could do and how you could do things mm. so I, I that was a, a really enriching part of that process yeah I think that's often the case with the kind of digital projects where you have to think about what the the possibilities are because sometimes there are important decisions that need to be made about you know, the structuring of data like that to be able to think about you know this is what we want to do with it now and we want to make it accessible and we want to make it accessible here and here but if we do this and this then that means if we, we're giving a longevity to this data that that makes it live on and it means that something that we can't do now but we can do in 10 years time we're, we're kind of prepping this material for that possibility so exactly so so are there two extra steps that we can take now Mm. that will allow us 
to open up the horizons of the potential for for this data or this material for the long term mm. and I guess that was that was really really important in itself in terms of the the content that we were creating but on a very selfish level it was really really illuminating for me is mm. to see how how someone else thought and to always put that little challenge to myself in everything then to say are you thinking as bigly uh, bigly Donald Trump <laughs> are you thinking on as large a scale about this as we could mm. it's great actually when you get that opportunity to see how someone with a very different brain and kind of thought process than you how they approach project I mean it's the, it's the ideal situation really isn't it if you're working on something with someone who's just you know you're coming at it from this direction and they're coming at it from completely the opposite um, it's it's nice when that happens and when it happens you know, and blends together well um, so yeah you were working on was that probably the, the, the beginnings of the major digitization projects within the National Library yeah so there've been um, digitization ongoing on a small scale mm -hmm. um, for years and years so particularly a lot of our prints and drawings and some of our photographs had mm -hmm. been online and even though those those initiatives were on a small scale, I think they were actually really important in creating the idea that this was something we could be doing and should be doing. Yeah, there's almost a need to, I think, with, especially with digital projects like that, um, to create the proof of concept and that gets the buy-in and then that gets people to go, well, actually, this is something we need to invest in and it sort of creates the, the, the trail yeah exactly and I think in organisations that have a very long history and a very long tradition um, sometimes change can happen quite slowly or the idea that our remit is expanding into particular areas mm. that can take a while to be bedded down so in a way those smaller scale initiatives had created the environment where the bigger um, scale projects were, were possible and not just from the point of view of of proof of concept which is critical but just in terms of changing people's minds mm. mindset at a kind of subliminal level where they just think oh yeah that is something the National Library does now yeah <laughs> and, and now we're just doing more of it um, mm. on a bigger scale and there was it seems like just from an outsider's perspective that there was you know a sudden kind of build up of an expansion in what the, the National Library was doing and in the way that it was approaching collections and certainly you know the um the huge body of, of digital work um, became a very, very strong core part of, of what the what the library was doing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it mirrored what was going on in the in the broader sector in mm. in libraries and museums and and, and galleries generally. Um, I again, I always feel that things patterns have existed in ter in what the library does from the very, very earliest days. And you can still see those those patterns in terms of the best of what we do. Mm. So if you go back to um, Thomas Lister, who was the um, librarian here when uh, James Joyce would have been at university in, okay. college, in College Green and come down to the National Library and worked in the reading room, he had this really long tradition of openness um, mm. there were complaints made to him about young people sitting on the steps outside the library and he said they have to be allowed to sit there because this is their library and a couple of days after the Easter Rising 
he wrote to the authorities to say, could somebody get him a copy of the proclamation? Mm. Because that was going to be this, is this record of contemporary life yeah. and that was going to be really important in the future. And I think he's, you can see all of those things in, say, the digital work that we do now, mm. that sense of um, the importance of the contemporary and collecting in the moment and also having an eye to the future and that idea of openness. Mm-hmm. So those patterns are there for a long time and then you have the technology or a change of some description that enables you to do things in a different way. Mm. Um, so while I think that's true, there would have been a moment where suddenly there was a lot of digital content available mm. um, or it looked sudden from the outside even if it's been oh, four sure. or five I'm years sure since back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's purely from the complete outsider's perspective. <laughs> I know um. these things, that, that idea of you know, the ch- change happens you know, mm. very slowly and then all at once. <laughs> and, and I think that's also how you tend to get awareness and recognition for something mm. is that suddenly you have a lot of it you know yeah. there's a moment of um substance that you can that you can talk about mm. um, and numbers and kind of high quantities of things are not necessarily the most important thing but they are ear catching mm. you know it's yeah. it's it's what someone will often would tune into so you have a moment where you can say 20,000 of our glass plates are online mm. that's a hook yeah, it always sounds great. That, that's a great story in terms of just being oh. able to... That's the great thing about having a, a very long history uh, and being able to look back and have kind of clear documentary evidence of this is what we were doing 100 years ago. And quite often it is the case that the more you look back in history, the more you realise that the same things are done. There are different methods for doing it. But, you know, if, if anything, it, con- it continues to give you kind of more grounds to... Um, to be confident in, in what you're doing to be confident that you aren't actually moving away from you're not moving away from anything you're continuing to uphold the same processes and you know the same traditions as have always been there but you're expanding them you're able you're able to do it in different ways um, it's it's always nice to, to make that connection I, I like that about you know, preservation of small pieces of a history it actually shows you that the more things change the more they absolutely stay the same um, we just have different means of Exactly. Yeah, it's it. You know, librarianship is values-based work, mm. and the values, in very many ways, remain the same. Mm. Um, sometimes, sometimes our interpretation of those values may have been narrow, and you see them expanding. Mm. Um, but the those that kind that the value of openness and the value of inclusivity and the value of um, recording in the moment, those those remain true and I think the other thing that's really important is that tradition is not necessarily conservative that's what I like about that story because I think that the the general perception would be that libraries particularly in Ireland at that time which was not in any way known for being very progressive um, the assumption would be that anyone in you know and the head of the National Library would be someone in a position of great power you know uh, great responsibility there wouldn't have been an assumption that they would have been open up to young people coming and sitting on the, the steps and, and it's, a, it's a great kind of, kind of myth-busting and stereotype-smashing idea that even back then librarians were saying this is this is your space you know you are you are entitled to be here you know you are who this is for um, and that's the we think of that as a very new thing that idea of you know inclusive spaces and open spaces and and inviting people in to use a space 
we kind of think of that as being sort of a new approach in libraries and again yet it's not it's as you said it's a core it's a fundamental part of what we've been doing I think yeah I mean I I completely agree with that no I I don't doubt um, from a confirmation bias point of view I register the stories that confirm my own politics and my own ideology I'm sure there are just as many (laughs) stories of people being turned away um, but but it's just it's just that exactly as you say um, the a simplistic picture of the National Library a hundred years ago mm. of um, fusty old librarians um, not letting anybody in who wasn't also a fusty old scholar yeah um, that doesn't hold up at all mm. you know and I suppose that I mean that tends to be true um, from most history no history is as simple as any straightforward version of it would would mm. make us believe and um, but I I suppose I enjoy that that particular one for exactly the reasons you're saying you know mm, yeah I just like the idea of the, the, the stereotype <laughs> smashing of it um so your role then kind of began to evolve and evolve outwards I suppose in that you're now um director of uh, outreach services is your um, area of responsibility here and and they have very much expanded in the last few years the 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 way that the National Library has kind of had conversations with the with the nation has really broadened. Um, how has that kind of developed, or how did you kind of move into that that space? Yeah, well, I think I mean, first of all, it's really that's really good to hear. It's great to it's good good to get that reflected back to us from from other people. Um, yeah, so in twenty ten, I got the job that I have now, which is the um, this outreach role, mm. and a few things made that possible I suppose um, I think as I'd said earlier in 2004 the library had had a elements of new building added on mm. so that there was an exhibition space and there was a lecture theatre and there was a cafe so sort of things were, were technically possible that hadn't been possible mm. before and then you also had at the same time technologically all kinds of new developments that meant new platforms were available to people without a very high level of technical skill. Mm-hmm. So um, social media, um, online video, all of those sorts of elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so things were possible at a time when the library was also thinking about strategically where did we, where did we think we should be going and what should we, mm-hmm. what should we be doing. So in my role, it, it encompasses... Um, our exhibitions and our learning activities and our online presence, our social media, our communications, our public relations, all all that end of things. Mm-hmm. So it meant that all of those things are kind of bundled together, yeah. um, which also means that you're more likely, I suppose, when it all works well, um, to see them working together mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then, uh, again, this seems to be a theme, is we've been extremely lucky in the people that we have working with us. Um, so my colleague Br- Bridget Sullivan, um, who came to us from the prisons, um, but not from prison, not from prison no. <laughs> <laughs> just clarifying, yeah. um, has been doing an amazing job on our learning and our events programming mm. for years and years, um, and you know brought a real breadth of experience from public libraries. So we also had new ideas and different ways of doing things coming in and um, from outside, and so Bridget is somebody that I've worked with and learned a huge amount from over the years 
Uh, and then we've always had wonderful people working in our education assistant roles. So again, people with different backgrounds, sometimes mm. coming from the museum sector, sometimes coming from learning. We have someone who was an archaeologist, so you have that yeah. sense of, of different community. Um, and then I suppose particularly in the last three years, um, our director, Sandra Collins, mm. also came from outside the library world, though she was in the cultural heritage space mm-hmm. at, the, at the Digital Repository of Ireland. And she was drawn into this world mm. by the desire to share and to open things up. So I suppose all of those factors came together. Yeah, and there was a, re- a kind of a beginning of a convergence between you know libraries and and different types of cultural heritage institutions and you know, digital humanities and you know bringing together technology and heritage and this kind of a you know emerging together of all these these different things that up to this point had been if not completely separate from each other there was certainly certainly a delineation between one and the other and so in a way you kind of had the perfect background to to be doing that type of role having had some experience with exhibitions and um, with special collections and with with all the elements that were fusing into into one i had this great lecture in um in ucd when i was doing my mlis mm. um who taught us did a course on databases and she was she was just she was a brilliant teacher mm. um, and one of the things that she said that always stuck with me and um, particularly around database design was you know most of you are not going to go into this you're not going to make a career out of designing databases mm. um, or a very going into a very technical role but an awful lot of what you will be doing is working with other people and you want to know enough about those different things that you can bring something useful to the table, that you have an understanding of the conversation. Mm. And I think that's so true about the convergence of those different spaces. Mm. Um, you know a little bit about um, exhibitions, you know you have maybe a cultural background. Um, I did an MPhil in Digital Humanities in Trinity a few years ago, mm. so you're bringing that as well. And it doesn't mean that you're an expert in any one of those areas yeah. necessarily, but you are. you know enough to be a useful member of a wider group yeah. and I think that's something that's been really valuable for me mm-hmm. I like yeah, that that's very similar to the way that I see some of my role as well I often think of doing particularly doing anything kind of technical in a library you're not necessarily a programmer you're not doing something that's extremely skilled and extremely technical but you need to know enough to be able to communicate between the people who don't know anything and the people who know lots and you, know, you need to have enough of an understanding between of the, the requirements of, of both um, so that's it's absolutely true what you say that, that you know the elements of kind of a successful fusion are you know, everyone being able to see everyone else's perspective at the very least or just, you know, um, often when you work with people who don't understand libraries or make an assumption about what it is that libraries do you spend a lot of your time trying to explain why you need a particular piece of software to do something when it's not necessarily designed for that and you're explaining it to someone who just thinks that libraries are about books or you know <laughs> has no concept of what what you do so you know, when when you're at least dealing with someone who sees the broad spectrum of what you offer you're you're at least able to kind of have the conversation and kind of take the steps towards getting things to, to match up the way you want to and hope and hopefully you have a, a bit of a perspective on 
people's different needs and, and mm. requirements and expectations you know you can kind of understand a little bit better why someone is asking for a particular thing or seems maybe to be fixated on doing things a particular way you just have mm. a sense of what that background is that, that might bring them bring them to that place the other thing I think that's been that's been critical in all of this as well in is is specific to Ireland in this moment mm. is because we have been living through the remembrance of a hundred years ago so mm. there has been a huge amount of emphasis on thinking about our past and thinking about our culture and thinking about our heritage and trying to understand what that means in the present and what mm. does that mean about the kind of country that we want to have so it's been a very rich moment I think for cultural organizations because for certainly the first time in my experience in such a concentrated way a lot of people are thinking about their culture and their heritage and what yeah. it means and i think and, and the, the national library has been part of the, very much part of that conversation it hasn't just been been about reflecting on you know our heritage and our culture it's been very much kind of part of a national kind of examination of our identity as as a nation because in at the same time as we were reflecting back on a hundred years, we were also experiencing an awful lot of change in you know in our day to day lives and huge kind of historical changes and big referendum and it's, it was great to see the National Library part of you know, preserving that you know very day to day experience and the, you know the, the big things happening as they happened you know recording uh, the, the websites of referenda and recording you know our, our experiences of big change as it was happening yeah so i mean i think that goes back exactly as we were talking about and um, to lister and his copy of the proclamation mm. is the role of somewhere like the national library is not about the past mm. it's about the continuum of the national story mm. and you have to be both collecting the national story in the moment and as you say, part of that conversation and facilitating conversation. And there's no doubt that for all its drawbacks, social media has been really, really valuable in that sense. Yeah. In that individuals can talk to and interact with and be part of a discussion with organisations and with individuals within organisations in a way that, that just was, was never possible at scale or in a visible way before. Yeah, this was the only... I, I, I find it interesting looking at the comparison um, you know, in the centenary um, commemorations and in some of the, the pieces of everyday life that were collected around that, like people's postcards or their communications and you know, seeing the sort of things that everyday people were saying about you know the rising about you know in the early days people just being annoyed about the trams <laughs> not running and it's very similar now if you look at you know it, it, it reminded me of the sort of things that someone would say in a tweet just you know an enormous thing might be happening but someone's focus is my bus didn't show up on time and these <laughs> are the things that you know a hundred years from now I think scholars would be looking at going well someone tweeted on the day that uh, of the, the the marriage equality referendum that they they couldn't drive past Dublin Castle or, you know, that it's 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 all about the how things impact people's daily lives and those become really interesting as more time passes. Yeah, there's a um there's a painting um by Bruegel which W. H. Auden wrote this really interesting poem about, mm. um, where which is in the painting, Icarus is falling out of the sky mm. and 
that's kind of the corner of the painting and everywhere else it's just people going on about their daily life and the horse is scratching his backside against a tree and mm. um, that's the, the kind of the thrust of, of Auden's poem is that wherever there's something big happening all these small things are happening as well yeah and I think that's a fascinating way to understand how how somewhere like the library captures the present moment mm. it's also very important for us to try to try I don't think anyone achieves this to try to avoid value judgments about what is important and what is not important yeah and what is significant and what is not significant and um, because what we know for certain is um, nobody knows what is important or what is not important mm. until we get quite a lot of a way down the line. Yeah, and in terms of you know just in the, the commemorations and looking at um, the centenaries and the the role of women and the voice of women and the fact that it hadn't been captured and that they hadn't really been kind of recognised was something that was seized upon. So there's anything that's a, a case in point of how how value judgments had been made about whose voice was worth recording. Um, it's it's an example to us of, of why we shouldn't do that again, that you know, we don't know at this point what voice, be it marginalised or not, may be very important to be captured for the future. And it is, I mean, that is a huge challenge now, particularly simply because of the volume of content that is being produced. Yeah is it is not it's not possible to be comprehensive just just technically um storage wise it's not possible yeah. to be comprehensive the library of congress tried to be comprehensive they tried to archive they, all the tweets yeah, and, they, and eventually they, they held up their hands and said we can't do yeah. it um and even even assuming that that was desirable because it's very hard to imagine then how anyone would ever make their way through the totality of a, of, of a comprehensive archive, mm. um, it certainly isn't possible. So we have to be selective, and in being selective, we have to be really careful about being transparent about the decisions that we're taking. Yeah. And when you're when you create when you are curating, which in effect is that that's what it is, is making a selective selection mm. of material. You try and challenge your own assumptions your own beliefs your own norms about what type of material is appropriate for for a national institution um and then you document why you did things yeah so at a minimum someone else can interrogate maybe our own the our own biases or assumptions that we're not even aware of mm. but it's a very interesting point that um, it is a huge challenge given the volume of material there is out there now. Yeah. Um, but do you find in your role in terms of the outreach element that you're in you know, a, a good, good position to be able to see what kind of a snapshot of your users is like and what a snapshot of you know, the, the identities that interact with the, the National Library are? Yeah, I mean, I think so, but then I would. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, th- I mean, what you what you do tend to get, I guess, is a is a, an anecdotal sense, at least, mm. when you run an event or you have an exhibition or um, you engage with a lot of people. On say, we've done various kinds of community collecting where um, users have come to us with their historical memorabilia, say, connected mm. with the First World War. Um, it's a kind of a way of taking the temperature a little bit and looking at the, the 
the variety of of mm. voices and perspectives and so on um i think we can do a lot more on that um we have a diversity and inclusion um, policy which we produced earlier this year mm. uh, and there are there are things within that i think that will also prompt us to be to look at how we do things and and a key part in that will be a consultation process with different communities and different user groups and uh, that lovely phrase you know nothing about us without us yeah is that in it'll be in the conversations with those communities that we figure out how what might we go about collecting the history of um, traveler communities for example mm. which tend to be oral rather than written a lot of the time um, and all those kinds of all those kinds of questions but i suppose when you're asking yourself the questions that's at least a good starting yeah, exactly. point at least is putting a foot in the right direction yeah um, um so it's you know i'm sure it would be i'm sure it would be easier in a lot of ways to have complete certainty about exactly what you should be doing all the time mm. um but I, I don't think it gives a good outcome be, yeah <laughs> are, are there people who have that i i'm very envious of them if they exist but I suspect they're. I suspect they're causing the rest of us a lot of trouble. <laughs> I suspect they're wrong as well. Like, just yeah. be like if you're ever completely certain about everything you're doing, then you're either very arrogant or very stupid. Or a bit, but a little bit of uncertainty is is probably a good thing because at least it keeps you guessing. About yeah, exactly. And you doing. need to you need to leave that space to interrogate yourself and for other people mm-hmm. to challenge you and to have enough space in your practice to be able to hear things. And sometimes people will will have a challenge or a question or a query that on balance you think no I'm I think we're happy with how we're doing something and yeah. then sometimes they will prompt you and you think oh god that's absolutely right that is a big gap or that is something we could do differently yeah um, and in terms of your your current exhibitions you've got a uh, the the Heaney exhibition opened in June uh, in the beginning of July just yeah, as sorry I think was, that was the end of June but the beginning of July yeah so it's really only been running for about a month or so now in your new space yeah in College Green do you want to talk a little bit about that or how that evolved and working with the the new space opening yeah so we've been working um to open the, that exhibition um which is in the Bank of Ireland Cultural and Heritage Centre mm. uh, so um, the entrance there is on Westmoreland Street. Um, for a number of years our Department of Culture who's our parent department mm. had been working with the bank about potentially making part of that amazing space mm. the phenomenal Georgian building and the home of Ireland's first parliament into a cultural space and they have a license arrangement with the Bank of Ireland that they've created this cultural space mm. um, which will be available for 10 years so the National Library is the first organisation to put on an exhibition in that space and then in tandem so again this kind of great um, serendipity in 2011 Seamus Heaney who wrote in the attic of his house in Sandymount and packed up the boxes in the attic took them down the stairs uh, with his son Michael they packed them into the car they drove the boxes into the National Library and with the help of the National Library staff they carried them up the steps and Mm. that's how his writer's archive came to be part of the national collections so Heaney is such an extraordinary figure in literature Mm. but an extraordinary figure in Irish life uh, that he was a very obvious candidate to be the subject of that first major exhibition in this first space Um, so 
we have worked for a number of years with the Heaney family, with Geraldine Higgins, who's the Professor of Irish Studies in Atlanta, in Emory University, mm. who's our curator, and a whole team of people. I think I think we were up to about 114 people at the last count who worked uh, on the exhibition. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> Um, wheels to keep turning uh, yeah to to open up the exhibition down there so it yeah opened at the beginning of july and we are over twenty one thousand visitors now wow yeah and yeah. um, for a month or... yeah um it's been just it's been an amazing thing to be involved mm. with like i i couldn't i couldn't be prouder of having had the privilege of of, of being involved with it um and then just to see the amazing work that was done by our design team Ralph Applebaum Associates and bringing Geraldine's vision to life with the archive and mm. the reaction that we've had from visitors has just been extraordinary, just mm. amazing. It seems to be a perfect representation of just how you put all the elements together, you know, the, the outreach, the collection itself, the, the communication with lots of different people, the collaboration, the partnerships, it seems to be kind of the perfect example of how to, to put that kind of mix all together and make the right kind of soup. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're starting out with something, if you're starting out with something remarkable, you're starting out with remarkable base material. Mm. Um, and I guess there's a, there's something, it, it feels, it feels um, like this is a, a tribute to, to Seamus Heaney as well, is he had a real genius for friendship. Like he had real partnerships, mm. real collaborations, friendships that lasted a very long time to make all kinds of art and it feels like that this is a way in a way a tribute to that side of him as well mm. is that it's in in the connections between people that you make something remarkable um so one of the one of the aspects of the exhibition that i love is the street artist macer mm. um who had been fascinated by words that Seamus Heaney wrote to his wife Mary just before he died he's done two pieces for us down in the exhibition and what he had done in 2011 in 2013 when Seamus died is the last words that Seamus texted to Mary were Noli Timere which mm. is don't be afraid and Maser had done a big piece on a gable end in Richmond Street um, with those words just very simple black and white yeah so he's recreated that for us in the exhibition um, as the very last thing in the exhibition with the words don't be afraid picked out in light and then the surround is chalkboard mm. so visitors can leave their leave their own message and I think it has such powerful symbolic um, impact that because the words themselves are incredible the idea that you can leave your own message and be inspired in some yeah, way be part of it. exactly the idea that a contemporary creative person was inspired by Seamus Heaney's words um, and that there are so many people bound up in that story and um, again just sums up that idea of of how this kind of enterprise is built out of the interconnections between people yeah and I like the idea as well of it being quite contemporary traditionally a huge retrospective exhibition on someone you were waiting quite a long time you know they often had been dead for a, quite a long time before you would see these big reflective you know celebrations of their their life and their work and you know there's a huge appetite given that Seamus Heaney it's really not been very long since since he died 
there's a, a big appetite for for his work but also it, it's nice to see something where you see you know the impact of of someone's life and of someone's work bringing it right up to you know the present day to right up to you know a living breathing moment you know whereas there's often this huge length of time that sort of distances you from from someone and kind of puts them into that idea of you know in the way that we think of Joyce and of Yeats and like we we, we kind of have a there's a difficulty connecting with them I suppose because you know they they don't unless you engage really heavily with their work they don't feel contemporary they don't feel like you could have known them whereas this is someone who you know is, is very recent you know he's um and being able to connect with you know the, the physical materials um of someone who has so recently been contributing to the the, the literary culture um, was great and then then being able to physically actually write write something and contribute to it yourself it, that that connection is really strong it's a real it's a real responsibility as well mm. um when somebody has is as as you said is is not very long dead coming up to the fifth anniversary now yeah. uh, when they were such a well-known figure in Irish life lots of people I mean every day someone comes into the exhibition who actually knew him mm-hmm. um his his family have been remarkable mm. you know they have been obliged to share him with everybody yeah um and it's a real like like, like i said that real sense of responsibility about about getting it right and doing it justice because mm. there are so many people who for whom this is in no way a, you know a memory or a, something from the past this is absolutely the living present yeah. um so that was a real I suppose it was a sense of responsibility that we all felt mm. um, and there is a certain amount of relief that goes with the feeling of okay well I think we, we did him justice and um, we've done justice to the the sensibility of all of the people who, who mm. felt an ownership of him um, I also think that he I mean, very particularly had what is an extremely unusual combination of accessibility and depth yeah so a lot of poetry which is accessible is not necessarily very very rich it's not necessarily going to sustain you for a lifetime um, and a lot of poetry which has great depth can be dense and difficult to engage with and i mean some of Healy's poems um, are not nearly as accessible as others yeah but there are a, a large part of the corpus of his work manages to marry those two things um, so someone who comes in off the street and doesn't know anything about Seamus Heaney except that he was a poet mm. will still probably go away with a line of verse or something that resonates with them and you might not find that so much with other writers yeah. but you'd have to dig for it more um, so you know he left us he left us an enormously um, powerful legacy in terms of in terms of that um, and I think my favourite moment in the exhibition is just after he died um, in 2013 there was the semi-final that year in Gaelic football was between um, Dublin and Kerry mm. and it was the 1st of September and when there was a moment silence announced for his passing and then there was a huge standing ovation and the idea that a cultural figure, a writer would be so central to the ordinary life of the nation yeah. that at this 83,000 sold out sporting event that his name meant something 
mm-hmm. to pretty much everybody who was there. Um, I think that that just says a huge amount about him, and also I suppose about writing and its place in in life in Ireland. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it is. It's a testament to to the type of character that James Heaney was, in that he is, as you said, that rare kind of blend of being incredibly and with a huge intellect, very cerebral in some ways, but being very accessible as well. And um, it's it's a rare combination. Um, mm. and, but yeah. I, I admire the the responsibility now I'm just thinking of how how much that must have been difficult to just to get it right in terms of being respectful to him to his memory to his legacy and his family and that it's that it's still very much still you know a family member that's gone and the, the responsibility of that is mm. is enormous and probably the reason why often these retrospectives are so distanced from the person's life I'm, I mean I'm sure I'm sure that that's true um and I I guess one of the things that I have thought a lot about in this particular context is because often um major major exhibitions are so far removed in time from the lived reality of the person the person has become a kind of an icon and mm. they've been simplified into the kind of key characteristics so not a caricature exactly yeah. but almost an avatar of themselves mm. it's what happens I think when it's a na- the natural part of grieving someone and them being gone it's that idea of you know the, the memorialising and the mm. kind of reification of the person <laughs> they've become kind of set in amber you know with um, well, they become what's interesting is they become set in amber like at a certain point in their life yeah so Joyce for instance um, has a kind of weighty heritage difficult semantic freight that's what Mm. he carries around with him and but when Joyce was living in Dublin as a young man he was you know rebellious and questioning and iconoclastic Mm. and playful and you know like to drink and that (laughs) um, so that's a that's also the truth of his existence, but it's not necessarily how how people understand him. When you break yeah. it down, to th- when you when you turn him into this kind of very simplified, um, one dimensional figure, mm. um, and Seamus Heaney was with us recently enough that that hasn't happened, you yeah. know. Um, and that's the beauty of having these <laughs> exhibitions so soon after, you know, in what or in someone's lifetime, um, or soon after it, and that you're you're getting to capture the the full. Mm. picture in something that's richer and deeper than just that like, memorialized notion of them um so some of your kind of recent acquisitions do exactly that in terms of bringing what is preserved by a national library right up to the contemporary kind of living memory and, and thinking of the um, the band-aid um donation at the end of last year and the neil jordan uh, collection that's just been donated recently so we're looking at things that are very much still in you know, in in living memory and in, uh, I'm, I'm showing my age now that I, rem- <laughs> I remember live age. Uh, maybe it's not living memory for younger people listening to this, but it's stuff that's you know, it's it's history, but it's recent history and it's pop culture and it's the sort of stuff that we don't always associate with preserving and kind of making part of big national collections, but they very much are still you know, important to um, a snapshot of what. Uh, what uh, was being produced and what was happening uh, at a certain point in time 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I also think that, say, if you take the if you take the Band Aid archive, mm-hmm. um, exactly as you say, a lot of people have a personal engagement with that memory mm-hmm. and with that idea, and a lot of people actually actively engaged personally. So a big part of the Band Aid archive is mm-hmm. the letters that people sent with their donations or saying that they'd raised money and there's there's letters from children and there's letters from, mm. from all kinds of people. Um, and then say with the Neil Jordan archive, the idea of an archive, what its value is, what it reveals to your researcher, is actually much more accessible for someone when they're talking about works of art that they have experienced. Mm. So most people have seen at least one probably many Neil Jordan films Mm. so the idea of trying to understand how those how those works of art were put together what it takes and how those iterations work suddenly that's a much more accessible thing because you know what the finished product looked like and you're interested to know how did you get to the finished product Mm. Um, so when when the the meaning of the event or the expression of the works of art is within people's own experience it helps to, I think, raise an understanding of the value of archives in general. Mm, yeah, it blends that you know, the, the nostalgia with the idea of, I think, the, the word archive makes people think of something that is very old, that is you know, maybe 100 years old, that it's out of living memory. Um, yeah, the sort of you know, Band-Aid and the, um, the Neil Jordan collection is more, you know, it's, it's like people's personal mem- memorabilia and it, you know, heightens the, that nostalgia and makes them it makes them think more of how they connect with it directly or where they were at the time rather than thinking of this is a representation of life in the past and I think it what it also has the potential to do and we, we can there are ways in which libraries and museums and archives can reveal this as well is it helps to resituate the the consumer or the, the reader or the viewer in the context of, a, of an historic archive mm. because it, it opens up that possibility of realising in a very full way that the, the, the thoughts and the feelings and the experiences documented in the archive are not the views of people 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. They are the views of people living in their own moment. Mm. Um, and that I think that, that gives a real complex kind of way of understanding and, and entering into archives um, drawn from the ones that are contemporary is that they're all all archives are contemporary that's, yeah. the, that's the, the point of them and you're trying to understand them in their original context and also understand trying to I guess challenge yourself to say well what does that mean now mm. you know what are the implications of, of those things now yeah and just to be able to see as you said the, the broad picture of how an enormous project is pieced together and what all the moving parts of that are. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see those collections um, become available once they're they've been catalogued and digitized. Yeah. And and something I suppose something else that tends to happen with those kind of big collections when there is a lot of attention on them is it's a little opportunity to slip in a bit of why does it take a long time yeah. to get from boxes in your archive in your in your institution to material online or records Mm. in a catalogue because I I think by nature none of us have any understanding of what anybody does until you until you have some experience of it it's very hard to really envisage the steps that are involved in anybody's 
daily work other than mm. your own. So every opportunity that that a library has, that the National Library has, to reveal that a little bit more and to explain that a little bit more helps in understanding why things might take a while or mm. um, the why it's important to have a range of people and why the tasks that they're doing are all significant and are all meaningful and all of those things are really important I think yeah even sometimes just the you know a photograph of the sheer volume of something that you've just been given like seeing the number of boxes or even just you know stating the number like we had like you say we have a box and it's got 20 we have 25,000 individual pieces of paper that have to be processed that someone has to look at that someone has to Know, digitize and you know or prepare for digitization even that just makes people have a little bit clearer of an understanding of just how much time is involved in all this because you just don't know until you've you've done it so. well i think it was um was it a canadian archive um in the last couple of weeks they had uh, they had done a piece oh, of, yeah. of taking the, the how long it takes to take the the, the, the paper staples clips, the yeah paper clips yes. out of out of um out of documents to prepare them for digitization mm. And I just thought it was such a, a nice, simple way yeah, of showing the well. volume of work that goes mm. into something. And just even like the, I think they had put the number of paper clips or the weight of paper <laughs> yeah, yeah. how much metal they'd had to remove from all of these documents and the time that takes and just the, the quantification of, of that that is just usually so invisible. Yeah, and I think, um, I, I personally, I feel that this is really significant, is it's not enough for people in the cultural sector to just assume that what we do is an unquestionable good. Mm. And that can be something that people fall back on, is it's cultural, it's historic, it's significant, it's an unquestionable good, and actually I shouldn't be asked to justify it. Mm. And I don't think it's necessarily about justifying, but I do think it's about explaining. Yeah. You, you know, if what you do actually is a good, you should be able to explain it. Yeah, you should, and you should be able to just say it immediately it should trip off your tongue yeah. really quickly and easily there will always be people whose values are different mm. and those people probably can't be convinced because they think potentially that um, it's not appropriate that things should be free for example nothing mm. should be free um, it's always going to be difficult to convince somebody in those circumstances um, of a very fundamentally different view of the world but I do think um, for all of us who work in a, in a cultural sphere if it's important enough that it should be funded and that we mm. can exp- that we should be able to explain that in a confident way yeah and i think these kinds of moments where you have a big acquisition or a big exhibition there are ways to do that exactly yeah they kind of put a, a spotlight back on it and can another opportunity to, to come out strongly and, and make your, your case for why mm. this is important um, and I, I, I very rightly um, you make the point that not everyone is going to agree and that, that's fine um, but you just need enough people yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you don't, and you don't need to be you know there doesn't need to be any apologising for that mm. um, you know, I, I agree that not everyone is going to see you the same perspective as you but if you if you're confident with your own position and you know it, then there doesn't need to be a conflict in that. Yeah, exactly. And I think often often defensiveness can come from the fact that you haven't really surfaced mm. why you think something is important. 
you do know it it's in there mm. but you haven't actually surfaced it and articulated it um, so a process that say that we would always go through when we're coming up to a big launch is um, put together you know um, a suite of what we think the questions might be yeah and some of those might be questions that could potentially be uncomfortable and that's really important you look at it and you say okay well how would I answer this why do I think this is significant why does it make me feel uncomfortable and here's the answer mm. and then I, I always find if you do prepare for what the worst possibility can be as far as what's you know if, if you get a really awkward question and you've already prepared for it you chances are you're not going to be asked that question but <laughs> yes exactly it's a kind of insurance for it. yeah it's almost it is almost like insurance <laughs> for just preparing for the most awkward thing you can be asked um so is there anything else um on the horizon that you want to to talk about as far as well i think the we always have a not that you don't have like you've got enough going on <laughs> <laughs> um so i think the single the single biggest thing that's on a on everybody's agenda for the next few years mm is we're embarking on a big redevelopment of our main building. That's right, yeah. So the way the, our main Victorian building is structured, um, we have our bookstore is facing out onto Kildare Street, mm. and it's a Victorian bookstore, um, cutting edge in 1890, less so now. Mm. And um, our public spaces are all to the rear of the building. It's our exhibition space and our um, lecture theatre. And we are getting to do what you almost never get to do with a historic building is get closer to how you would have done things if you were starting from scratch oh wow so moving all of the book storage to the rear of the building Mm -hmm. where it's possible to have the right kind of climate control and um, fire suppression and also your books should be furthest away from Mm -hmm. the the entrance you know you want to keep them in, in the safest possible conditions and then your public services should be up at the front of your building mm. because they, that disadvantage that we talked about with a Victorian building of being people being a little bit intimidated or take you know uncertain mm. about quest, again those kind of questions of power and privilege and where someone has access to um, if you can see activity that looks like a thing that you're allowed to yeah. do right up at the front of a space it's much easier for um, a visitor to come over the threshold. And when they come over the threshold, they're always going to find a welcome and something to offer. But it's that critical yeah, that, moment. Yeah, that's a very important point, actually. It's in, in all buildings and anything, like being able to see inside and just see, okay, I can, I can see people that are, that are like me. I can see activities happening here. I can see that it's okay to walk in. Mm. That, it's such a small thing, but yeah, it's very important. Well, I remember, I think this is a really, this is a really um, seminal moment for me and I um, hope I will never forget it. I remember the first time I came into the National Library, mm. um, I suppose I would have been in my late teens, maybe early 20s, and there was an exhibition on um, that was around the front hall and that exhibition continued on up mm. the stairs. To the, there's a mezzanine, a half landing, but you have to go through security gates and you have to pass by a, yeah. a man in a security uniform or, or a woman um, to get up there. And I just remember going, I don't know if I'm allowed to go up there. Yeah. I don't really want to ask the man. And I just hope I always remember that feeling. Mm. Because the um, it's in, I think it's in A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf talks about how it's bad to be locked out, but mm. it's almost worse to be locked in. Yeah. And 
you don't ever want to be in an organization so long that you forget what it's like to be on the outside of it yes yeah that is a, a very good point um and maybe one to to wrap things up on but it's it's um yeah very really nice point to make, <laughs> the idea of what what you, the the assumptions that you make yourself that you stop yourself doing things and stop yourself um going in places but i, I hopefully um everyone is well aware of how opening and, and how welcoming the national library is and what a, a good space it is to come into yeah well even if it's just to come in and uh, get away from the rain exactly and so we meet a whole series of needs and if um, a dry space is one of them then we're delighted to do that yeah. too <laughs> uh, well thank you so much for talking to me and uh, good luck with everything you're, you're doing thank you very much oh. Catherine for being such a really interesting guest I could have talked to her all day um, obviously someone who really loves what she's doing and they're clearly onto a really winning formula there in the National Library I'll put up the links to the Listen Now Again exhibition on the SoundCloud page so there's no excuse at all not to, to stop in and check it out we've got more interviews scheduled in the coming weeks and maybe possibly a live recording uh, so keep hanging in there and if you don't already, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher so that you get new episodes as they arrive. And if you do like or even find the podcast mildly tolerable, then give us a like or a review. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris.